It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. First of all, happy birthday. That happened Thank a few you. days ago. And as kind of a birthday present, you had a little dust up with Elon Musk. You called him a corporate welfare king, and he called you a liar on Twitter. Tell us about what the fallout from that has been. Well, I've been listening to Elon Musk speak out against government subsidies to corporations over the months and talking about himself as a great capitalist entrepreneur, when in reality, he takes all kinds of corporate welfare for his Tesla plants, for example, in Nevada, for his solar plant in Buffalo. Anytime he opens up a plant or starts a company like Starlink, he demands all kinds of subsidies, handouts, giveaways, grants, and especially a tax deferral or tax holidays or tax breaks. In Nevada, it was worth over a billion dollars over 20 years. So I, I did a tweet on that, and he reacted the way you described. He challenged me on the facts. So I just issued another tweet pointing out some of these facts, and he has not answered. Now, Elon Musk spends a lot of time tweeting every day. I called him the grand master of tweetitis. I don't know how he has time to manage all these companies, but he tweets and he tweets, and he likes to have the last word. Well, he didn't answer my second tweet outlining all the corporate welfare he's been receiving for his companies. Well, I like the way you coined the word tweetitis. Let's put that in the dictionary. Let's lobby for that. Tweetitis. Now let's get on with the show. <laughs> The divide between red and blue states doesn't just play out in the halls of Congress. If we zoom in on any state in the nation, we'll see fierce partisan battles for control over the state Senate, assembly, governor, and other state offices. So what does the party alignment of our state government mean in practical terms? Does it make any difference in our daily lives, whether we live in a red, blue, or purple state? The short answer is yes. Our first guest today will be journalist William Kleineck author of States of Neglect, How Red State Leaders Have Failed Their Citizens and Undermined America. In his book, Mr. Kleinecht demonstrates the widening gap between red and blue states in economic growth, poverty, school performance, infant mortality, teen pregnancy, effectiveness of healthcare systems, air and water quality, and life expectancy, just to name a few. He'll join us to discuss how we got into our current partisan hellscape and how we can get out. That's the first half of the program. Joining us in the second half will be Oliver Hall, the founder of the Center for Competitive Democracy, which works to identify and eliminate barriers to political participation and to secure free, open, and competitive elections by fostering active civic engagement in the political process. But we're talking to him today about one of Ralph's favorite American legal institutions and our most accessible form of law, small claims court. Small claims courts were established to allow ordinary people to resolve small disputes without huge costs or complications, but they've largely been taken over by debt collectors and business interests. That hasn't always been the case, and it doesn't have to be. Mr. Hall will talk to us about what he calls the large potential of a small claims court. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, state governors like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott spent a lot of time raising money on culture war issues. Meanwhile, they starve education and healthcare, empower polluters, engage in voter suppression, 
and neglect their citizens' well-being in the interest of cutting taxes for their wealthy donors. David? William Kleinecht is a longtime newspaper reporter who covered politics, government, criminal justice for the Detroit Free Press, New York Daily News, and Newark Star-Ledger. He is the author of The Man Who Sold the World, Ronald Reagan and the Betrayal of Main Street America, and States of Neglect, How Red State Leaders Have Failed Their Citizens and Undermined America. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, William Kleinecht. Thank you for having me. Welcome indeed. Listeners, this is a book I've been waiting for. In fact, I started a preliminary project to show what the red states are like for ordinary people compared to the blue states. This book is about that very subject. And I think anybody who's part of the Democratic Party, local, state, and national, should get this book immediately. Had they had it earlier, they would have won the elections in a much better way. And to illustrate what I mean, you have a good summary, Bill, but it doesn't do justice to the whole book. But on page 99, I'm going to read what essentially is the basic message. Listeners, quote, Republican elected officials measure success by the number of corporate headquarters sprouting in their newly fashionable cities, not on the quality of life enjoyed by ordinary citizens who often live well outside those cities. View the media gushing over low taxes and slim budgets in the Sun Belt. Ask what price is paid for that fiscal austerity and who pays it. All five of the states often celebrated for their growth, Texas, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, and Georgia, rank toward the bottom in their per capita outlays for health care, education, infrastructure, job training, environmental protection, and just about any other public program that makes a difference in people's lives. They tend to have lower quality education, shoddier health care, unchecked pollution, meager unemployment benefits, low medium wages, and poorly trained workforce. None of this is of concern if you're a banking executive in Charlotte or a tech worker in Phoenix and you live in an exclusive suburb, have good health benefits from your employer, and send your children to private school. But it matters to millions of people who are poor or lower middle class, that is, a huge slice of the population. Actually, I think you're understating how bad the situation is in the so-called red states. Just to give you an example, in Florida and Georgia, they were building nuclear power plants, and they couldn't get financing from Wall Street. You know, it's a very risky thing even though the government insures these plants. So they developed something called construction work in progress, and they charged the ratepayers in Florida and Georgia billions of dollars before they even got one kilowatt hour from these nuclear power plants, which were under construction. It was such a boondoggle that the plant's construction sites were shut down in Florida. They never built the nuclear plants. In Georgia... They're still sucking up billions of dollars from the federal taxpayer in Washington and from construction work in progress. No northern state would ever do that. They would never say in New York or Connecticut or California or Oregon, well, we're going to build an electric plant, but we're going to charge you for electricity you didn't even get because it isn't producing any electricity. So that's just one example in addition to um, far weaker consumer protection laws 
not that they're that great in the northern states, but they're really almost a nullity in the southern states. What made you write the book, Bill? I wrote the book because when national news organizations talk about the red states, the focus is always on hot button issues like abortion, immigration, election subversion, and even critical race theory. And that's by the design of the Republicans who run those states. That's what they want people to be talking about because that fires up their base. What has gotten very little attention is just how damaging Republican leadership in those states has been for a longer period of time and across a much broader range of issues. And I wanted to drill down in those issues and show just how they have failed their citizens. And as the title of the book says, how it undermines the country as a whole, because this is half of the country. The half of the states, working people are not getting the education and health care and exposure to broadband and things like that are the building blocks of uh, successful societies. You know, you mentioned in your introduction, Senator Rick Scott, the scandal-scarred businessman. He was running a hospital on corporation that was defrauding its customers. It was heavily fined by the federal government. And he decided, well, I think I'll run for governor of Florida, and he gets elected. Then he says, I think I'll run for Senate, and he gets elected. But you notice that his environmental deregulation in Florida exposed the Gulf Coast to ruinous algae blooms, while Republican Rick Snyder, the governor of Michigan, architect of a four-state takeover of Democratic-controlled cities that resulted in the Flint, Michigan, water crisis, and Scott Walker, governor of Wisconsin, who crippled collective bargaining rights in Wisconsin, a state that was once a labor stronghold. When you were doing the research and you were talking to people in the South or in the red states, did they get their back up when you told them what you were doing? You know, there's nothing more powerful than a comparison. Again, listeners, we're not talking about an ideal situation in the northern states, but quite a gap in one area after another. Medicaid, unemployment compensation, and so on. Did they get their back up at all when you told them what you were doing? Well, the reason they didn't is because in the states I went to, I always went to where the the poor were or the working class who were getting the short end of these policies. And I found that uh, most of them were aware of that. You know, every state, even the reddest states, still 25 to 30 percent of their voters vote vote for Democrats. And I found that when I went to where the poorest people were and the people who were suffering from environmental degradation or poor health care or anything, they got it and they knew it. I think it's a different segment of their population that is the MAGA Republicans. And I didn't spend as much time around them because I was looking for where the damage was. Well, you know that the overall situation is hardly ever discussed. I mean, when you hear the mass media, you hear Governor DeSantis brag about Florida, land of freedom, land of low taxes, come. And you point out that they have low taxes on corporations and rich people, but their property taxes and sales taxes, which tend to be regressive, are pretty high. But I want to emphasize again just how deep this difference is. And he quotes Gordon Lafer, a University of Oregon professor who studies labor issues, quote, but legislation regarding minimum wage, child labor, wage theft, tipped employees, construction wages, occupational safety, job discrimination, employee misclassification, overtime pay, unemployment insurance, budgetary retrenchment, and privatization of public services. 
That's his comment on what these red states are up to. But nothing's more devastating in your book than your description of West Virginia. West Virginia used to be a Democratic stronghold under John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson. It's now a completely Republican-dominated state. And it's a very, very poor state. Comes in 48th, 49th on various indices, as has been pointed out repeatedly by the, the blog Morgan County USA. Tell us about American Water Company and the Elk River disaster spill and what the governor and the senator have in terms of conflicts of interest with the coal industry. Give us a panorama of West Virginia in that respect. Well, the governor is a coal baron. He has a coal company, and he engages in blatant conflicts of interest by pushing policies and legislation that reduce taxes on coal companies and reduce regulations on coal companies. And His name is Jim Justice. Jim Justice, yes. The Elk River disaster was partly the responsibility of American Water. This is a private water company that runs privatized water systems around the country, just has a terrible track record of lawsuits and unnecessary rate increases. There's a lot of communities that have actually taken back their water system. And in West Virginia, this company failed to invest in the kind of technology that would have prevented the Elk River disaster. This is one of the worst cases of contamination of a public water system. It's a water system for 300,000 people and a company that stores chemicals that are used to clean dirt and rock from coal. West Virginia had not showed up to inspect their holding tanks for more than a decade, and a leak happened, and it went into the Kanawha River. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. And it went into the American water intakes. Now, they could have had They could have had monitors in that river. They could have had a second intake in case there was something like that happen. But they have invested very little in the infrastructure, and they get a rate increase year after year after year. And no one knows how many people were sickened and maybe have had long-term issues because of drinking that water. Because there have been studies showing that even after the state and the company warned not to drink the water, people kept on drinking because... You know, if you're poor and you live in a rural area of West Virginia, you don't, you can't go down to the convenience store to buy water. You might not even have a car. So they kept drinking it and bathing in it. And it was an atrocity. Well, you know, nothing is clearer in the difference in your book than how the Southern state Republican regimes, legislative and executive, turned down available federal money to expand Medicaid beneficiaries for poor people. The government had appropriated in Washington 90% of the cost. The states had to put in 10%. And these governors said, no, we don't want anything. And they're leaving low-income people in their states without the protection of Medicaid. Can you expand on that? Yeah, this is one of the greatest acts of political spite in the history of the United States. There are 12 states that have refused to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. This would bring billions of dollars in funds to their healthcare systems, which also would have spin off and create economic growth in other ways. And there was a national study that found between 2014 and 2018, 16,000 low-income people died because they lacked medical coverage. These are people who would not have died, the study fund would not have died if they had had access to Medicaid. Now, you add six more years since then, and the total is much higher. We're not even talking about 
people who will die later because they didn't have access to preventive care now. And these are the, the states that are blocking it and refusing to expand are the states that need it the most. For instance, Mississippi has an infant mortality rate in 2018 of eight deaths per 1,000 births. That exceeded Bahrain, Kuwait, Chile, Bulgaria. Its life expectancy in 2018 was the second lowest in the United States. The 15 worst were all red states, and most of those states have refused to expand. So this, this is just malfeasance of the highest order, and it, there is no rhyme or reason. It is just spite against Democrats because this is a successful, popular program. Everybody in these states wants these programs. Polls have shown that. It's extremely popular where it has been expanded, and there's just no rhyme or reason for the states not to do this. Well, the red states do get a lot of publicity for suppressing the vote, especially last year, all the different ways they're obstructing the vote and not counting it accurately and making it hard to have absentee voting and a whole variety of ways. You could write a small book just listing, summarizing them. They get through the legislature, the governor signs them. And the red states are really ahead of the northern states in gerrymandering. It goes on all over the country, but the red states have really perfected it to make sure that the black vote does not leverage state legislators into office. And they're not getting publicity for other things they're doing. For example, you talk about Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. That's T-A-T-E-R-E-E-V-E-S. I mean, he's a real, almost beyond cruel and vicious. Describe how blatant he is, and he brags about it. Well, this is one of these states that cuts taxes over and over again. I mean, for instance, 40% of Mississippi's population is obese, and it has the second highest diabetes mortality rate and the second highest cancer rate. So to counter that problem, in, in 2016, Governor Phil Bryant, who was Tate Reeves' predecessor, cut the state health department budget by $40 million, and which included an $8 million reduction for the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And at the same time, they pushed through between 2012 and 2017, Phil Bryant and Tate Reeves pushed through 51 tax cuts or tax breaks that cost the state $577 million in revenue. In fiscal year 2017 alone, the cuts cost $324 million. So they're jeopardizing the lives and, and the well-being of their citizens to pour money into the coffers of big corporations claiming that by doing that, they bring more companies to Mississippi. But study after study has shown that companies don't make decisions on where to base facilities on the basis of tax cuts. They, they look at how educated the population is, how good the infrastructure is. So this is just a giveaway to corporations, the same corporations who shower people like Tate Reeves and Phil Bryant with election donations. Well, also, you point out these outside secret money lobbyists like the Koch brothers, the Dick and Betsy DeVos family, the Richard Scaife Mellon interests, and their front groups have really had great success in Southern legislatures in getting bills through. I mean, it's really astounding how specific their success was. As you point out in your book, they actually, beginning in 2015, blocked the creation of public transit systems in Nashville, Little Rock, Phoenix, and more than a dozen other communities around the country. And they paid people to knock on doors and put ads on TV and, and defeated them. These are 
oil interests. They don't want public transit. I mean, it's pretty granular the way they've entered these southern states. I'll bet you some of our listeners are now saying, how do these lawmakers and governors get away with it? Because all the ordinary people, not just African-Americans or Hispanics, all the poor whites, all the Hispanic, low-income, African-American are being harmed and deprived and excluded and treated badly. So even with the gerrymandering, how do these legislatures keep finding themselves with cruel and vicious lawmakers that keep getting reelected? Well, I think part of it is in a lot of the, the red states, a lot of the red states have large areas that are news deserts, where if there are newspapers, they've been decimated by cuts and layoffs. They're owned by private equity firms that just strip everything they can out of them. So there's, there's not a lot of media coverage of these things. Uh, CNN and even the New York Times and Washington Post don't go into a great deal about what's happening in individual states, especially if they're smaller states. So I, I don't think the public even realizes that these things are happening. One of the things that's a big part of the legislative success of Republicans in these states is a group called the American Legislative Exchange Council, which, uh, according to Gordon Laffer, between, you know, the, the American Legislative Exchange Council drafts uniform legislation that is proposed in state house after state house in Republican states across the country. And according to Gordon Laffer, each year between 2000 and 2010, 100 ALEC bills became law, and that as of 2017, ALEC members included 2,000 state legislators, a quarter of the nation's total. And ALEC has gotten money from the Koch brothers, from the same dark money billionaires that you talked about, and they're just flooding money. And a lot of this money goes into advertisements, TV advertisements that distorts reality, but fires up the base. And I think they're just, they're funding mass ignorance, and that's how these people are able to get away with it. I'm curious. You know, there are some newspapers in the South who are among the better newspapers in the country. The Miami Herald, the St. Petersburg Paper, the Atlanta Constitution. Aren't they pointing this out? In other words, are they avoiding the comparison between red states and blue states and just sort of pointing out certain things like Governor so-and-so refused to take Medicaid money from the federal government to provide health insurance for poor people? I haven't seen, in my research, I didn't see as much in which they're comparing red states to blue states, but I have seen some very good reporting on corruption and malfeasance in those states. The Miami Herald is is one. The Louisville Courier-Journal wrote a lot of great articles about former Governor Matt Bevin. Even the Charleston Gazette in West Virginia has done a lot of investigative reporting about the conflicts of interest on the part of the governor and leaders of the legislature. But I think they're doing a little less now because every year there's more cuts to these newspapers. The Charleston Gazette was bought out. Louisville Courier Journal is owned by Gannett, which has really just gutted a lot of their operations. Some of the reporters who have done those stories are retiring. But but you're right. They do cover it. They just cover it less than they should because they're not able to give it more coverage. But Miami Herald does a good job. The Houston Chronicle does a very good job, I find, of what's going on in Texas. But a lot of people don't read those newspapers. They get their news from Fox News. So I don't think a lot of the information filters down. They seem to have so dispossessed and discouraged regular people in those states that they have lower rates of civic engagement. They don't have the initiative referendum recall the way some of the Western states have. 
they have, you know, often great difficulty in using their franchise as voters, as was pointed out. And the Southern governors and lawmakers have become very demagogic in distracting attention from the ordinary people's livelihood issues into things like critical race theory, supposedly being taught in some schools, transgender issues, and so forth. They've been very clever. DeSantis in Florida has been very clever doing that. And they're good at propaganda. They keep saying, hey, if things are so bad in the South, why is the migration pattern in the United States overwhelmingly from north to south. Can you answer that? It is because two reasons, warmer weather and cheaper real estate. But the appeal of cheaper real estate is not going to last much longer because in Texas and Florida, real estate is increasing rapidly. But in the book, I quote a state official in Florida who is candid. People are coming here because they can sell their houses in the northeast and midwest, and they can buy much more of a house here, and it's, and it's warm. That's the reason people have been going to the states forever, and that hasn't changed. It does help that there's that there's no income tax, so wealthy people may gravitate there because of that that reason. But families, if they're going there, they're finding that the schools are inf- inferior, the healthcare is inferior, and I think we're going to see a slowing of that migration as property values increase. Property values in Austin are through the roof, and in parts of Florida. And I think we're going to see the slowing of that. Well, Governor DeSantis brags about Florida being a low tax state. But as you say, the truth is that Florida has one of the most upside down tax systems in the nation due to its over-dependence on sales taxes. In Florida, a worker making minimum wage spends a greater share of their hard-earned cash paying state and local sales taxes than a millionaire. In Florida. And yet, whenever there is a referendum in Florida to raise the minimum wage, it wins overwhelmingly against all kinds of opposition by the fast food retail chains, McDonald's and others, plastering the television. It doesn't matter. When the people are given a voice, direct democracy, without having to go through Tallahassee, they vote progressive. How do you explain that? Because when they have something specific in front of them, their thinking isn't clouded by the issue of abortion and guns and critical race theory. They're asked, do you want better health care? Do you want higher wages? And of course, they're going to vote for that. I think the Republican leaders do everything they can to prevent these referendums from getting on the ballot. But now and then they are unsuccessful and they get on the ballot and the people, the people vote. One of the most startling things that I have come across in Florida was the Orlando Sentinel. Now, remember, of course, as you said, the state has no income tax. It has a very low corporate income tax. And the Orlando Sentinel reported that 99% of the state's corporations pay no taxes, no matter how high their profits, because they have all sorts of tax avoidance schemes and the state doesn't spend any time trying to close those loopholes. So that means that all of the money comes out of sales taxes and excise taxes, which, as you said, fall heavily on the poor. And now DeSantis is talking about reducing those taxes, but it means they're going to have fewer and fewer services. He was able to give teachers a raise this year, but he was able to do that by using the Biden administration's federal bailout funds that DeSantis criticized, yet he was happy to take them and get the benefit in his run for president by saying he raised teachers' salaries. But there's still 
even with the raise, they're still among the lowest paid in the country, and they have among the highest turnover in teachers. In fact, I believe they have the highest turnover. And they also paid about the lowest salary to public defenders. They were paying public defenders, lawyers representing poor people, somewhere around forty, forty-two thousand dollars. These are people who've been, you know, practicing defending poor people for years. Let's go to Texas. You say, quote, in 2017, property taxes accounted for 45% of what Texans paid in state and local taxes, third highest in the nation. So when the, the governor, Abbott, talks about Texas not having an income tax, but the property taxes are pretty high, and that's how they get around it, in addition to spending less on public services. What's this that really was stunning here? Christopher Berry's study of 26 million properties sold between 2006 and 2016, listen to this, listeners, found that owners in low-income neighborhoods effectively paid property taxes double those of wealthy neighborhoods because of skewed assessments of property values. In a state like Texas, where government services are funded disproportionately through local property tax, the people of the most modest means take the biggest hit, end quote. Well, this book, States of Neglect, How Red State Leaders Have Failed Their Citizens and Undermined America, by William Kleinnecht, is a must-read, also in blue states. We shouldn't get a big ego living in blue states, but it's very important, as my sister, anthropology professor Laura Nader has pointed out, to do comparisons. Comparisons have a different kind of impact on people different kind of dynamic, different kind of humility that's induced from these pompous Republican, mostly legislators and governors in the red states. I mean, they're totally shameless the way they brag about their superiority over the blue states. Is there anything else in the book that you think I should have mentioned? They claim superiority over the blue states. But across the board, if you look at red states, they have lower per capita economic growth, higher poverty, inferior school performance, higher rates of suicide, greater prevalence of diabetes, higher rates of infant mortality and teen pregnancy, less effective healthcare systems, lower healthcare spending. Across the board, they are inferior to blue states. And that, that's not because blue states are paragons of progress and are, are looking out for the working people the way they should. And in fact, places like New York and California, it's only fairly recently that I think prodded by the Donald Trump presidency, which moved a large of the population to the left, only now are, are they beginning to invest in their human capital, but they're doing it and they're doing it across the board now. But yes, no matter how you measure it, the blue states, at least from a socioeconomic standpoint, are superior to the red states. Here's a paradox for you. Where do the biggest verdicts generally come from in wrongful injury suits? You would think they would come from the North. Wrong. They come from states like Texas, Florida, South Carolina, Georgia. You know why? Because the jurors finally being given a position of power, applying the facts, are basically saying they're not going to stop us from giving this wrongfully injured family an adequate award because we're the jury under the Seventh Amendment. So you do have a strong populist strain in Southern people still. And yet what you say in your book is only possible, not just by corporate power, 
but it's only possible by political repression of the best instincts of these people and blocking them from reflecting these instincts, except when they're in the jury box or when they have a direct referendum. Like in Arkansas, they passed the minimum wage overwhelmingly, but Arkansas is a red state, but it was a direct democracy referendum on that subject. And we should not forget that the worker compensation laws in the southern states for worker injury are often very much lower than they are in some of the northern states. I think your book has got to be read and used, not just read. It's a tremendous body of information about what's happened to our country, what's happened to the treatment of ordinary people, what's happened to union busting, which you also talk about. A lot of the auto plants that are starting, including foreign companies, are being placed in the South because they can escape the United Auto Workers and pay non-unionized. Boeing took one of its plants from Seattle to North Carolina and used very unskilled labor, but it was cheap to build their planes, and their planes out of that factory have been having very serious quality control issues. So there are penalties and prices to pay, and you point that out in your book. And I would think that your publisher, the New Press, should send a copy to every member of Congress and to political organizations all over the country that can use this, whether they're red state or blue state. This is a long overdue book, and I want to congratulate you, William. We've been talking with William Kleinneck, author of States of Neglect, How Red State Leaders Have Failed Their Citizens and Undermined America. This is a book that Governor DeSantis, if he runs for president, is going to trip on as he goes around the country. That is, if the Democrats have the brains and the strategic sense to buy this book in big volume and spread it all over. It could have saved the Democrats in the House of Representatives last year. Thank you very much for writing this, Bill. Well, thank you for the kind words and thank you for having me on the podcast. You're welcome. We've been speaking with William Kleineck. We will link to his new book, States of Neglect, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, Oliver Hall joins us to discuss the large potential of small claims court. But first, let's take a quick break to check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, March 3, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Popular kitchen appliances brand Kasori is recalling 2 million air fryers after receiving 205 reports of the air fryers catching fire, burning, melting, overheating, and smoking. Resulting injuries included superficial burn injuries as well as property damage. The Consumer Product Safety Commission announced the recall last week, urging consumers to immediately stop using the products, which have a wire connection that is prone to overheating, raising concerns the fryers could catch fire and burn or otherwise injure consumers. After a thorough investigation, we determined that in extremely rare circumstances, the closed-end crimp connections within the recalled air fryers can overheat, posing fire and burn hazards, Kasori said in a statement on its website. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. How can we revive our forgotten court? David? Oliver Hall is a public interest attorney in Washington, D.C. He is founder and legal counsel to the Center for Competitive Democracy, which aims to strengthen American democracy by increasing electoral competition. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Oliver Hall. 
Thank you. Great to be here. Welcome. Well, Oliver, you're a champion of ballot access for independent and third-party candidates, but this time we're going to talk about another one of your interests, which is small claims court. And people who are ripped off, whether as tenants or indebted consumers or they buy shoddy merchandise, they think that really it's just too expensive and too dilatory a process to try to sue these companies. Well, many years ago, people had that same attitude and they heard some good news that the reformers established small claims courts. So we're going to go step by step, listeners, to show how you can use them and how they now are being used more, not by consumers, but by landlords and creditors. Oliver, give the original inspiration briefly for Small Claims Court and tell people where are they located? Are they conveniently located? Where are they located? Sure. Small Claims Courts are a division of every state court's civil side. And so, yes, they are convenient. They tend to be right in the downtown courthouse of of every town or municipality. They were established in the early 20th century following an article by the legal scholar Roscoe Pound, who had argued that consumers should have an easy mechanism for pursuing claims over relatively small amounts of money. And that's what small claims courts do. You can file a claim for a relatively small amount of money. They have low filing fees, very simple procedures. You don't need a lawyer. And essentially, all you need to do is fill out a statement of claim form that the court itself provides. So people are familiar with the TV show Judge Judy or before Judge Judy, there was uh, Judge Wapner with the People's Court. Those are actually fairly accurate representations of what small claims courts are and how they function. And tell us how simple a process is. Can you fill out the form online from your home? Do you have to go down to the court? And what are the fees like? And how much can you sue for before you hit the cap that defines the jurisdiction of small claims court? Sure. The jurisdictional limit varies depending on the state that you're in. But the low end is $2,500 and the high end is $25,000. Filing fees also depend on the amount you're seeking typically, but not always, but they're very low. They can be as low as $15 to up to as much as $150. Well, unfortunately in Connecticut, which calls itself the constitution state, it's about $90-95, which is pretty high if you've got a $200, $300 claim. But Is it really easy to use? If it is so easy to use, Oliver, why do so few people use it compared to creditors, landlords, auto dealers, et cetera, who do use it against consumers? That's true. It is very easy to use. And you are correct that the caseload, the, the corporations and the debt collectors have sort of dominated the docket of small claims courts, although not entirely. People do use them and and use them successfully to obtain redress for grievances against um, businesses and corporations. But I, I think it's probably a function of the fact that people simply are not well enough aware of the fact that this is a forum that they can easily access and that it is very easy to pursue a claim. I, I think there's also maybe a cultural aversion among some people who are reluctant to sue. They think maybe this isn't worth it. But the fact is, as you well know, Ralph, 
in our increasingly corporatized world where transactions are automated, contracts are one-sided contracts that corporations create with so much fine print you couldn't possibly read it all and ostensibly require you to sign away your rights. I think people get intimidated or they assume that they don't have the right to pursue a claim in small claims court. And the fact is they do have that right. It can be done. And there's no reason more people shouldn't do it, especially given the level and pervasiveness of corporate abuses just in everyday normal transactions that we all engage in, whether it's with internet providers, cable TV providers, the phone company, ExxonMobil. If you have a grievance against ExxonMobil, you can haul them into small claims court and they must answer or you will win a, a default judgment against them. So it can be done. Well, when you sue these big companies, say for 1500 or $2,000 or $3,000, they've got to hire a lawyer and show up. Otherwise, they lose by what you called a default judgment and the consumer wins, shows up in court. The other side isn't there. They don't think it's worth the cost. And the judge said, verdict for you. And then you have to collect. Is there a problem collecting judgments in small claims court? There is. And I don't have the data on that, but certainly collection can be problematic, but there is a mechanism for it. And essentially what you do is obtain a judgment against the defendant, whether it's a business or a large corporation or whomever it might be, and then you serve the judgment on the defendant with a demand for payment. If it is one of these large sort of faceless corporations that seem impossible to reach a real person on the phone, listeners should be aware that every one of those corporations is required to have a registered agent in any place where they do business. And you can find that corporation's registered agent, usually through the office of the Secretary of State, and you can serve the registered agent simply by mailing the judgment by certified mail. And then they're obligated to pay the judgment. If they don't, they can be held in contempt of court, of course. But even before you get to that step, you can also subpoena the defendant, make them disclose where they hold their bank accounts, and then you can obtain a writ of attachment against those bank accounts. And the bank will be required to pay the judgment that the defendant is refusing or unwilling to pay. Now, if that starts to sound more complicated than a, the average layperson could do, and maybe you do need to, to hire a lawyer for this sort of thing, it really isn't. And the courts typically offer guidance on how to pursue these specific legal steps. Many courts post manuals for small claims litigants on their websites, and you can simply refer to the manual perhaps download the form for a subpoena or a writ of attachment, fill it out, and follow the instructions for getting it served on the defendant. So it is possible for any lay person to do this, no matter who the defendant is. But short of that, even if a person doesn't want to use a small claims court, if the person knows about how to use a small claims court, is on the phone with a company that's hassling them, that's harassing them, that's overcharging them, I've found where People would say, listen, this has gone far enough. I think I'm going to take you to small claims court. And then you get a pause. They put you on hold. They talk with their superior. They come back and say, well, we can get an accommodation for you on this. So just the challenge of taking them to small claims court will get the attention of these press one, press two, press three automatons that are now controlling you with algorithms. Now, Oliver, you won a small claims court. 
case. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. It was when I was in law school in Boston, and I had purchased a laptop computer. It was a Toshiba, a very reputable brand, and I bought it at one of the local computer, you know, mega stores. And and it wasn't cheap. It was fifteen hundred dollars, and I used it for a while, and the fan started whirring and. Pretty soon, you know, the thing was overheating and and just started crashing. And eventually, the computer just totally crashed. A major system error was the, the the message on the screen. And I called the store where I bought it, and they said they wouldn't even take a look at it unless I paid them ninety five dollars to do what they call a diagnostic test. And I'm thinking to myself, I know the computer has had major system failure. I don't need to pay this store another hundred dollars to tell me that. And they just wouldn't budge. And they told me to go to the manufacturer. I contacted Toshiba and was very illuminating because Toshiba revealed to me that the computer had been purchased two months before I bought it and was registered in the name of another customer who had then returned it. And the store sold the computer to me as new. And so at that point, I sued them in small claims court. Now, a very important part of this process is that every state has enacted a Consumer Protection Act. They all have different names, but you can Google and find out what the statute is and how it functions. And in Massachusetts, the statute allows for triple damages against a corporation that violates any of the provisions of the statute. Essentially, what these statutes do is define prohibited business practices. And if any corporation or business engages in one of those prohibited practices, you can sue them. And each time they violate the statute, it's a separate violation. So I sued in small claims court, very quickly had my day in court, The computer store did show up. The representative of the store helpfully admitted that not only did they sell me a refurbished computer as new, but that was an ongoing practice at the store. That was something they typically did, selling floor models and other machines that had been returned to the store as new. And it wasn't long before the judge who heard the case essentially threw the book at this store, awarded me triple damages for the computer, which was $4,500. So in the space of a few weeks, having pursued this, I now had a judgment against the store for $4,500, which is, you know, three times what I paid for the computer. And they did pay up. Well, it's a successful story. I I think the small claims court just needs to be publicized more. The state certainly can see it as a legitimate goal to publicize it more than the states do even the municipalities. Because I remember many years ago, the student group called the New York Public Interest Research Group made a study of small claims court, was astounded at how underutilized it was by all the fleeced consumers in New York City, and bought ads on radio shows. And voila, the number of filings went up because people heard about it, learned about it, and did it. So is there any clearinghouse or anything, Oliver, that people can go to, or is it just simple enough to go to the website for the small claims court in their area and look at the instructions, which are pretty clear and pretty simple? That's right. I'm not aware of any national organization that provides data or guidance on how to use small claims courts, but I think that's largely because of what you said. They are very simple to use, and the whole purpose is that you don't need guidance. You don't need a lawyer. You just tell the court what happened in a very simple statement and assert that you have a legal right to a remedy. 
and then the court can figure it out. And like I said, you have your day in court. But even though there is no national organization that I'm aware of that's working on this, there do tend to be organizations in each state that provide guidance for people who might pursue a claim in small claims court. So for example, here in the District of Columbia, where I live, there's a website called lawhelp.org, and they have a full section of their website that's dedicated just to small claims court. And they also have a clinic where people can walk in and get free guidance once a week on any of the claims they might want to pursue. So there are resources like that in other states. And Maryland, for example, there's a website called peoples-law.org, and they also have a section of their website dedicated to small claims courts. Again, the courts themselves can be very helpful too. They publish their own materials telling you how to pursue the small claims process, and then the clerk's office can provide further guidance. There are two hurdles we should mention, of course. One is arbitration clause that's in a lot of agreements with consumers, and the other is that the defendant company, if it loses, it can appeal to the superior court, which is more complex. Isn't that true? That is true. They can appeal to the superior court, but again, this is a claim that arises out of small claims court. And it's understood that most litigants, if not almost all, do not have representation as attorneys. And so the arguments over these kind of relatively minor civil disputes shouldn't require a lawyer even at that level. But it is true that corporations can do that. In my experience, and the, the one case I told you about is not the only one I've pursued, there has been no appeal. The corporation realizes, look, uh, we did something wrong here. We've got a judgment against us, and we should make this thing go away. And that's what they do. Are there any companies you can't sue in small claims court because the federal government has preempted such suits like in aviation against airline companies? Not to my knowledge. The airline industry, the various airlines, I believe, are not subject to lawsuits in state courts. That all has to be done at the federal court level. However, small claims is an exception. So people can and do sue the airlines in small claims courts for lost baggage, damaged goods, you know, flights being canceled, that sort of thing. Now, one important thing to remember is small claims courts can only award money judgments. They cannot require the airline to buy you a new suitcase or provide any other kind of action, which is what we call injunctive relief. But they can award money damages against airlines, and they do so. In my own experience, I had a colleague who was trying to fly back here to Washington, D.C., and American Airlines simply canceled her flight without notice and without providing any kind of remedy to all of the stranded passengers. And we sent a demand letter to American Airlines, and you know they at first were not willing to do anything more than I think they were offering a, a $100 voucher. But then we sent a demand letter, and as you noted, suddenly their ears perked up and they offered a $500 voucher, which is getting closer toward a full remedy for the harm they caused. And so, so my colleague accepted that as a settlement and, and moved on. Well, we're interested, listeners, in people who you may know who want to participate in a project to publicize small claims court. So let's hear from you. And the more publicity, the more people will use it, and it won't be twisted into just being used by creditors, landlords, auto dealers, and other vendors. They have a right to use it, of course, but the original design 
was to reduce the complexity and barriers to using the courts by creating a small claims court for consumer use. If we have time, I would like to provide one more example that might pique listeners' interest about really the great potential that small claims courts have to hold corporations accountable and change corporate behavior. Yes, go ahead. Okay. So in the 1980s, the San Francisco airport was apparently rerouting its traffic over a residential community and causing tremendous amount of noise pollution. And the residents of that community essentially felt they had no redress until clearly they all got together in a kind of a coordinated campaign and began filing lawsuits against the San Francisco airport in small claims courts, bringing claims for nuisance. And there were over 100 of these lawsuits. Every one of the plaintiffs won their lawsuit and they won the jurisdictional limit. I'm not sure what that was at the time, but they won the most amount of money they could win in small claims court. And the airport then argued and and did take this case on appeal and argued, look, these claims are too complex for small claims courts. They never should have been brought there in the first place. But the case was upheld. Each of the judgments were upheld and the plaintiffs were able to collect their judgments. So you begin to see that kind of action and how it could spur a powerful business interest or a corporation to change its conduct going forward. I think of it as kind of a disaggregated class action lawsuit. A class action lawsuit is one where a large group of plaintiffs all suffer the same kind of injury arising out of the same incident, and they all litigate a case with a named plaintiff as their lead plaintiff, and then they all win the same remedy that the the lead plaintiff wins. Well, this is somewhat the inverse of that, where you can bring a large number of people can bring their claims in small claims court. And, you know, if you file enough of those and and the judgments are successful, that can have a, a real impact on the corporate behavior going forward. Well, another way to really publicize small claims courts is to have small claims court clinics at our 210 law schools all over the country so that the law students can stimulate use of small claims court and educate the public. That would be another great diffusion of the small claims court availability. So listeners, if you know any law schools who you think should do that, let us know. Well, we're out of time. Thank you very much, Oliver. Among your many portfolios, you're director of the Center for Competitive Democracy. Just a minute describing that, and we'll have to conclude. Great. Thank you. CCD, we founded it in 2005. Our goal is to strengthen American democracy by eliminating barriers to participation. Really, what we focus on is the problem of collusion among the elected officials who all happen to be members, almost all happen to be members of one or the other of the two major parties in this country, Republicans or Democrats. Naturally, they have an incentive to rig the rules of the electoral process to benefit themselves and to exclude competition. So we work on litigation challenging those rules, constitutional litigation challenging those rules. And in the last several years, we've had a number of pretty significant successes, which led to the rewriting of ballot access rules for competing candidates and parties in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Maine. And we also have cases pending in Texas, in Indiana, and we pursued a lot of claims during the COVID pandemic to get emergency relief for candidates who were having a hard time complying with these rules that the major parties were not revising, notwithstanding the fact that you essentially couldn't leave your house for some of this time. 
So we've won a lot of judgments that have improved American democracy, and I encourage everyone to check out our website, competitivedemocracy.org, for all the news and, and our recent updates. All about giving the voters more voices and choices, more voices and choices on the ballot when they go to vote. Thank you very much, Oliver Hall. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I want to thank our guests again, William Kleinnecht and Oliver Hall. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, which now includes our new segment by Francesco DeSantis called In Case You Haven't Heard. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now to order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight. Go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We'll pick some standout comments, so be sure to tune in next week. You may hear Ralph's response. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager, Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. 